Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Hello, Jason Barney here for Educational Renaissance. Today, I'd like to share with you about Aristotle's virtue theory and a Christian purpose of education. And so far in this series, I've really been using Aristotle's intellectual virtues more as a foil to Bloom's taxonomy. As I've looked at Bloom's taxonomy, this uh, 1950s vision of educational goals in the cognitive domain, and I've unpacked it and shown what is lacking or needed in it, as well as its strengths. And uh, my big picture goal is to ultimately replace Bloom's taxonomy with Aristotle's intellectual virtues as true goals of education, better objectives termed better so that we can really understand what um, the intellect and the training of the intellect is all about in a holistic perspective. I haven't yet, though I've given kind of an outline, gone in detail about Aristotle's intellectual virtues, his virtue theory, and how that would fit with his purpose of education, what it means to cultivate flourishing human beings until now. And so I'm starting a longer section, kind of a new part of my series on Bloom's versus Aristotle that's now just focused on Aristotle and unpacking that. So my goal in this series has really been to go through that arcs uh, that we do on educational renaissance, where we start with something that's new and bring it back into something that's past. We can sometimes go about that the other way, where we begin with something that's past and then bring in newer modern research. But that's our basic idea here of recovering this um, great tradition of wisdom and bringing that into the modern era. We're going into Aristotle now, and um, we've got a few questions to answer as we get started, because uh, Aristotle's virtue theory has this bigger picture perspective. And so we need to lay first this foundation in Aristotle and specifically in his Nicomachean Ethics Book 1, if we're going to be ready for really looking at the intellectual virtues in Book 6 well. We need to understand the big picture perspective. And that perspective is ultimately around, for Aristotle, human happiness. Human happiness as the purpose of life and the purpose of education. And he uses the term eudaimonia in Greek to talk about that happiness or flourishing. As we build this foundation then, third and lastly, I want to take some time to unpack Aristotle from a Christian perspective. That's that Christian purpose of education, because we can't just assume that Aristotle has all the answers. I certainly don't, as much as I have respect for Aristotle as the philosopher, as St. Thomas Aquinas would call him. He may have gotten some things wrong, and he certainly doesn't have the fully orbed Christian view of things that we would like. So we have to ask, how and in, in what ways can we appropriate Aristotle's views 
within a fully orbed Christian worldview. So we're going to look at the Bible and Christian theology some to do that. So we've got a lot to do. So hopefully you're ready for a jam-packed lecture. Hang in there with me as we get going. So first, the purpose of education as the purpose of life. Now, my, my first point here about the purpose of life and the purpose of education connects in with Aristotle's basic idea that he starts his Nicomachean ethics with, and that is that everything points to one ultimate purpose. We have means and we have ends, and we do many things for the sake of other ends. And there are even higher ends that we do certain things, we want certain things for the sake of those bigger ends. And so you can think through this kind of causal structure in the sense of goals and how goals lead up to bigger purposes. And his basic idea is that we have one ultimate purpose as human beings, one telos, one end to which everything is ultimately aiming. And he calls that purpose eudaimonia or human flourishing. In the classical education movement so far, one of our strengths, as I said at the beginning of this series, is our insistence on, in, on framing education as part of a grander story with a bigger goal than simply job training or, you know, getting what we need, getting good scores, getting into college, the next stage of the educational journey which is a little hamster wheel that we find ourselves on in the modern era when we forget our big picture goals and ends. So human flourishing, eudaimonia for Aristotle is the big picture goal and we would cultivate that in the classical tradition through cultivating wisdom and virtue. The point being here that there's a joy in pursuing excellence, in pursuing knowledge for its own sake and we could reference the idea of flow from the modern psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. I've got a whole series and a book on that that I would point you to. So the big picture here is the purpose of education is really subsidiary to the purpose of life. And we have to know what the purpose of life is if we're going to figure out the right and true end of education. And so for Aristotle, again, all these goods that we might seek in life ultimately are aiming at eudaimonia, and they may do so well, or they may do so poorly. But this big picture kind of question that he's framing things as in the Nicomachean Ethics is what he calls actually a branch of politics in searching for how we actually get to happiness, human flourishing. He sees that as a question that is politics. We would see it as Christians as a theological question. He has this earthly frame and sees it as politics, something to do with the city of man. And we could compare Augustine's The City of God. The idea is here that it's not an individualistic thing, which is so true of our modern era and of Bloom's taxonomy, that this question of how we can actually have happiness or find fulfillment in life is actually a communal one. We need each other. We need the city, the polis. We need specialization to really get all that we can out of life. Now, assuming all of those things, which um, have been discussed by Colby in a recent series of articles engaging with Plato, Given that foundation of a good working city, 
you could think of the Republic, how um, Plato is thinking of the city and the human, you know, the individual human and justice in the individual and how that relates to justice in the city as kind of a, a side glance here. But the purpose of education is this purpose of life. And for Aristotle, that is eudaimonia. Well, how do we get there? Given that we have a city, what is the best route to happiness? And Aristotle concludes that it is the cultivation of excellence or virtue, arete in Greek. And specifically, the two excellences of the soul, moral excellence, which is cultivated by habits and often in our youth, and then intellectual excellence, which he says comes about through teaching or instruction, and therefore it takes time, it takes experience and much time in order to have intellectual excellence. Another way of framing this big question for Aristotle is, uh, under the rubric of how people generally try and achieve happiness for themselves. He says there are three main ways that people try to achieve happiness. One is by pursuing a life of pleasure. We might think of the life of comfort and ease, the retirement, all of that. And he says that ultimately that has many pitfalls in its path. Second is the life of honor. They pursue happiness by trying to receive honor from others by doing things and acting in ways that will get them honor or respect from other people. We often try to be happy or find happiness by pleasing others so that we would then have the things that we need in life and feel satisfied with ourselves. Ultimately, uh, Aristotle dismisses this route as well. He says it's too fraught with difficulty if your own happiness is dependent on others and how they will think of you that's probably never going to work out well and so he ultimately says that the best route is the contemplative life the life of contemplation you can see the intellectual virtues having a core place for aristotle in the route to happiness and then if we think big picture about aristotle's nicomachean ethics for a moment He's going to go into, after kind of these initial big reflections in the first couple books of his ethics, he's going to go into a long section, perhaps the longest in the book, about the moral virtues and how they are a mean between two vices, two extremes on either side. And then in book six, he'll get to the intellectual virtues. He'll sweep back around and talk about the importance of self-control before finally concluding his treatise by discussing friendship and the importance of good friends. And so ultimately we can think about this big picture question in terms of like how, how do we actually find happiness or success in life? People these days in the modern era like to use the term success and in an earlier article I talked about the growth mindset and how Carol Dweck, in this recent very popular book of psychology, talks about the importance of having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. The idea is that we can, as human beings, incrementally get better, more excellent at something, and that we're actually more likely to be successful and enjoy ourselves and get the most out of life if we think that we can grow rather than thinking that we just had what we have given to us and we don't have any 
or very much agency in the matter. It's not really a matter of effort. It's just a matter of chance. Well, Aristotle has this sort of mindset. He has a, an excellence-driven, an arete-driven growth mindset, but he does qualify this view of happiness to say that it's not like things will work out for you no matter what if you just pursue virtue. He acknowledges that if you pursue virtue and then everyone hates you and things go absolutely poorly for you for the rest of your life, well, one, that's gonna be really rough. We can't really say at the end of the day, when you get to the end of your life, that you were happy if you lived a life of tragedy. So there's some measure of chance and good fortune that you need. You have to have enough wealth to be able to get on with things and to be able to even pursue your gifts and have enough free time or leisure to enjoy friendships, for instance, and other things that he finds valuable in life. So this is Aristotle's view of the purpose of education as the purpose of life. Ultimately, what we're trying to do in education is train students in the moral and intellectual virtues so that they're set up for a life of human flourishing. Hopefully, they will have some measure of good fortune and will be able to find good friends. And then they have the best shot that we can give them of having a life of happiness. Well, how do we situate this within a Christian view of things? As Christians, we do believe in moral virtues, but we also have a bigger view of things with a life of eternity and not just a temporal life. And we think in terms of Christian salvation. So this next part of the lectures on moral virtues and Christian salvation, how we view these things as Christians. And in a previous article where I talked about how excellence comes by habit in Aristotle, I referenced the idea of common grace in Christian theology for a way of dealing with the fact that from a Christian perspective, we get these virtues by the gift of God and our human responsibility plays a role. So it's ultimately not either an, a divine gift or human responsibility to the neglect of others, but these are in some way reconciled in scripture and in most theological traditions. But we have this problem as Christians where we can see virtues in people in the world, and we have to reconcile that with the, the fact of Christian salvation. One of the ways that the Christian tradition has done this has been to uh, appropriate the virtues of the Greco-Roman tradition, for instance, of, of philosophers and Stoics, and we've taken those under the name of cardinal virtues. So the four cardinal virtues were justice, temperance, fortitude, and prudence. And those are sort of a summary of Aristotle's virtues and Stoic virtues, containing perhaps many other virtues underneath them. Interestingly here with these cardinal virtues, one of those virtues of, um, is prudence. And that for Aristotle would have been one of the five intellectual virtues. Prudence is practical wisdom or phronesis. And so he's got, if you will, justice, temperance, fortitude, three moral virtues, and kind of one intellectual virtue in there as we have this paradigm of the cardinal virtues. And then for Christians, we have the theological virtues as well, which are faith, hope, and love taken from that climactic statement for 
Paul at, at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. These three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And for Christians, we'd say that in general, people in the outer world can have a form of the cardinal virtues, but true faith, hope, and love that are focused on God are only truly possessed by those who put their trust and faith in Christ and are transformed by his spirit adopted into the family of God. And so we have these two paradigms, if you will, in Christian tradition of the cardinal virtues, the moral virtues, and the theological virtues, what I might call the spiritual virtues. And similarly, I think we can see from Christian uh, theology that the purpose of life and therefore the purpose of a Christian education as well would be the cultivation of eternal happiness through the moral and spiritual virtues. So we've got those virtues. We want to see holiness, as it says in Hebrews, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And of course, there is in Christianity this God-centered focus on things, this view of life after death and the eternity and the judgment of God that awaits us all that frames this whole question of what true happiness is and ultimately relativizes some of the things about our world right now. This age is not the end of the story. There's a new age. This body is not the simple body, the only body that Christians will have. We will have a new body in the age to come. And so the nature of death and resurrection and the new creation completely shifts what, what we would see in Aristotle's focus about a, this world, this earthly life focus on happiness. We might not attain full happiness now, says the Christian, but in the age to come and the, the happiness of that future reality, that'll come trickling in and for believers even filled the heart in the sufferings, persecution, and challenges of this life. Now, Aristotle, by way of contrast, has this, you know, godlike cultivation of excellence, moral and intellectual, which needs to be coupled with good fortune and good friends in order to have a fully orbed happiness. So it's somewhat dependent on chance, but your best shot of taking as much uh, agency in your own potential happiness as possible comes through cultivating the moral and intellectual virtues. For Aristotle, this view is sort of God-like because it's contemplative and he envisions a God just contemplating the world out there. But it is not focused on God. It is very human-centered. We can shift now and um, having kind of laid out first Aristotle's view and then here a Christian view of moral and spiritual virtues, I can ask the question, where have all the intellectual virtues gone? In our Christian paradigm, perhaps I'm not pushing too far to say that it's interesting that we haven't taken on board in at least this traditional manifestation the full intellectual virtues. And I could, of course, cite kind of more modern resources and ideas, like I think of Mark Knoll's The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, 
and the scandal being that there is no evangelical mind. And of course, I would say that that's certainly not the case anymore, but it, um, it does raise the issue for us of what is the place of intellectual virtues in a truly Christian worldview, in a truly Christian view of the purpose of life and of eternal happiness. Is it just our moral and spiritual nature that plays into that? Or does our intellect play in as well to our own well-being and human flourishing in this life and the next? And I think that, you know, we have some reason to have undercut the intellect, especially given Aristotle's godless, in a way, focus on the intellect and morality. We have reason for this rich Christian tradition of undercutting the importance of the intellect in some ways. And you could think with me of the Apostle Paul saying that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Agape, love, is so much more important than your gnosis, your knowledge. Knowledge can puff you up. Love, however, will build up the whole community. So that's important. You could also think of how in 2 Corinthians, Paul goes on to talk about the folly of the cross. How there is this foolishness about the Christian message to the Greeks that um, seek wisdom. And they see the cross and they think, oh, oh my goodness, that is just uh, foolishness to us. But he does also in that passage go on to talk about how among the mature, we do impart a wisdom, a, a hidden and secret wisdom from God. And so I think there is actually a really solid place for Christians in the New Testament and the Old Testament for the importance of intellectual virtues in our holistic sanctification and salvation process, our human flourishing and our ultimate happiness before the Lord. And I think we can see that in Paul amongst other places. He actually uses some of the terminology that's taken from Aristotle's intellectual virtues. He may not have exactly the same meanings in mind, but when he says we have the mind of Christ, he says, noose. We have the intuition of the Messiah. We have this transformed frame of reference, way of viewing things, mind or perception. We, we don't reason from the same first principles as the world, Paul says. And, and so what I think is actually going on for Paul and other New Testament authors is that the intellectual virtues as well as the moral virtues, get reframed in a spiritual perspective. So the introduction of the Spirit of God and the mind of God and a truly God-centered and cross-centered perspective appropriates the virtues of the surrounding world. There is a witness in every place and age to some of the truth of what's good for us as human beings. But the spiritual frame shifts them. And so what we actually have is not a subsuming or throwing out of the intellect with the introduction of the spirit, but actually both the moral and the intellectual virtues get 
reframed by the spiritual. And I think that's what Paul is saying in a couple different passages. We have the intuition of the Messiah now. We have a new view of things that means our wisdom, our Sophia, our philosophic wisdom is going to look different. We need to actually, as Christians, Romans 12, to be transformed by the renewal of our intuition. We need to reframe things. We might say in modern terms, adopt a Christian worldview. And when we do, that changes everything, but it keeps fundamentally the intellectual virtues. They are a part of full human flourishing. We were made by God originally as intellectual beings. We have intellectual gifts and abilities that serve the church. And we could think even of how some of the spiritual gifts have an intellectual frame. Others have a moral frame. But they're all, you know, empowered by the same spirit. And we could, I mean, I think we really should expect this sort of integration and interpenetration of the spiritual and intellectual and moral realms in the New Testament, given what we have in the Old. I think in particular of how Bezalel was anointed by the Spirit of God for the construction of the tabernacle and for the craftsmanship. You think of Aristotle's techne. Of course, that's a couple different words in Hebrew where, where he's described in Exodus as having ability or chokhmah, wisdom, and skill, and craftsmanship, and knowledge in order to create all of these holy articles for the tabernacle. This is something that God gives as a gift, but it's part of his abilities as a human being to create things that are beautiful and can be honoring to God and used in worship. And so I think that that piece as well as the book of Proverbs as a whole, where we're told that wisdom is more valuable than any earthly good, and is, in a way, our ultimate pursuit. If there's a book of the Bible that gives us a Christian view of education, a Judeo-Christian view of education, it's the book of Proverbs, and their wisdom is the ultimate pursuit that we're going after, and so many other things like knowledge and discernment are just swept up in it. All of the intellectual virtues are involved. So I think that a truly Christian purpose of education uh, involves the intellectual virtues. And I think we can appropriate Aristotle's intellectual virtues as a helpful frame of reference, provided that we avoid the man-centered view of all things, like the statement of Protagoras, the ancient Greek um, sophist, man is the measure of all things. We have to reshift and give a spiritual perspective that has God at the center of all things and the cross as the ultimate wisdom of God in spite of being folly to mankind generally. And if we do that, then we can appropriate the intellectual virtues as a part of a holistic human flourishing fully activating our abilities as creatures made in the image of God, reflecting the beauty and glory of our good God 
our God who knows what is true, who's omniscient. He has this intellectual nature, not like ours, but still. And he is spirit. And so my conclusion here in this talk on Aristotle's virtue theory and a Christian purpose of education is that it makes sense within a Christian paradigm to adopt moral, intellectual, and spiritual virtues as the proper purpose of education, which leads us ultimately to the proper purpose of life, which is that we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's God-focused, but it has as its means the full cultivation of moral, intellectual, and spiritual virtues. I think that amongst other things in other places, Peter, for instance, gives us this paradigm when he says that we should add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. I, I think that he's in essence gesturing to these three categories as well representing goal of Christian discipleship and education, that we would have first faith, piety toward God, that spiritual realm of things, and that we would then also have virtue. He uses deliberately that term arete in Greek, I think, to reference the appropriation of this whole Greek tradition of virtue thinking. We have endorsed many of the virtues of Stoicism and Greek philosophy in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, Peter's letters, all over the place. And then also knowledge, the cultivation of the mind. And so this is, to me, a proper Christian and classical purpose of education, the cultivation of moral, intellectual, and spiritual virtues for the good of the body of Christ generally, the good of the individual and the church holistically in the eternal enjoyment of God himself throughout everlasting life. And uh, I think um, that actually John Amos Comenius had it right when he pointed in this direction in his great didactic. John Amos Comenius is the great Czech Christian educational reformer of the 17th century. I'm working my way through his great didactic with um, the head of school at the school I work with, David Seibel. Shout out to him. Let's keep reading. There's so much good in there. The way he frames the work of education is just like this, that it's actually the purpose of education is for the good of the soul, both in this life and hereafter. So it's, it's about the eternal happiness of the believer for now and in the future life. And that's what education is for. It's preparation for happiness in this life and the life to come. And therefore, it involves the full cultivation of the human person in multiple spheres. So he looks back to the image of God and ultimately lands on these three areas of virtue, learning, and piety. So we've got the learning or knowledge, erudition, he uses that term that's that intellectual virtue category. Piety is that, that faith, that spiritual virtue category, and the virtue being the 
um, category of moral excellence in general, as it's turned out to be. So this is my ultimate conclusion here to, again, frame the big picture for us. If we're going to unpack Aristotle's intellectual virtues in particular and, um, you know, have in mind the moral virtues and spiritual virtues as well, though we won't be able to go in the same detail with those, but we want to have those in mind as we build out and think through how introducing again Aristotle's intellectual virtues as the goals of education would reframe the whole project of education from the big picture of the schools that we make, the curriculum, how we go about teaching in terms of pedagogy. We have to have this big picture purpose of education in mind first as for the ultimate happiness of human beings in this life and the life to come that we cultivate these three spheres. Let me just give one aside before I close, and that is that some of you may be thinking right now, what about the cultivation of the body? It seems like you've left out the body and you were talking in terms of the body before. Well, I would remind you, and I'll go in more detail on this, that one of uh, the intellectual virtues of Aristotle actually incorporates the body, especially, though all of them do, in other ways, and that is the virtue of techne. All sorts of artistry or craftsmanship, learned skills that involve the body and the production of some good are for Aristotle intellectual virtues. And so if we were to talk about, um, in his terminology and way of framing things, bodily virtues, those would actually be things like good looks that you're born with. What you're born with in terms of your body. and and if we, you think about the, for instance, health that you have, some of that is what you're born with. He would call that part of it for perhaps a bodily excellence. But some of it is actually due to what you do in taking care of what you've been given or cultivating it. And that would fall under a moral excellence, that you act well with regard to human goods, that you have the right habits to pursue you know, the middle way, temperance in, in what you do with what you have and how you live. So for him, what we're talking about in terms of bodily excellences, those would fall respectively under moral and intellectual virtues. And we could even see from a Christian perspective how spiritual virtues, viewing our body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, would also have implications for our use of the body. So for him, for Aristotle, and this paradigm that we're developing as we try and think in his terms and see what that does for us as modern Christian educators who aren't inclined to think in Aristotelian terms, the body, it has a place there. And the idea is that for us as Christians, because of the resurrection, it's purely external or extrinsic goods, like good looks or success in worldly terms or things like that, even good friends, John Amos Comenius says those are ultimately relativized from a Christian perspective. They are nice things if we can have them. They are not to be neglected or thrown out. That would be to neglect something good that God had given. But if we don't have the good fortune to be born with those things, then uh, ultimately that's okay because our true hope and our fullness of joy and happiness is found in the life to come, the resurrection, the new creation. So we can suffer all manner of deprivation 
in terms of our, our body and our life and our goods. But if we have the by, the, by faith, through the Spirit, the cultivation of moral and intellectual and spiritual virtues, we have everything because we have Christ himself as we put on his righteousness and grow through sanctification and living that out day by day. So that's the paradigm here. And that's the kind of big picture that we're going to use as we develop things further, is the idea is the true purpose of life, and therefore of education as well, is the active cultivation of moral, intellectual, and spiritual virtues for the ultimate enjoyment of God in this life and the life to come. Well, I hope you're enjoying this series so far. I look forward to delving further and further into Aristotle and then bringing it further, you know, bringing it out into our world today and the implications that this has for you as a teacher in the classroom. So thanks for joining me and have a great day.